Let us pray. Father, many years ago, you spoke through the mouth of your prophet Isaiah. We ask that you, by your Spirit, would open our ears to hear his words afresh today. Open our hearts to respond. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Dean Paul is away this week on a prayer retreat, um, which means that I get the chance to preach, and I'm very excited about that because it's Advent, and I love preaching in Advent, um, and I love Advent as a season, but I do, I will say, it, it is a, it's a strange time of the year uh, because, you know, you look around and lights are up everywhere, and Christmas music is playing in the stores, and everyone has, uh, has happily and thankfully set aside their diet goals for the next several weeks. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but somehow Netflix has managed to produce dozens of new, sentimental, heartwarming, nearly indistinguishable Christmas-themed movies. <laughs> but if you want, you can just binge Christmas romance films to your heart's content. Move over Hallmark. Netflix is here. That's not really what makes the season strange, of course. What makes it strange is that despite the festivity and despite the smiles and the singing and the cheer, the world really hasn't gotten any better. It was several days ago I came across a news article that was detailing some of the evidence given to the United Nations this week about uh, some of the horrific violence that Hamas soldiers have perpetrated against women, in particular in Gaza. I won't repeat any of the details here, uh, but it was an appalling read. And then, just the day after that, Rachel and I, we took the kids to see um, Andrew Peterson's Christmas concert, which was wonderful. Um, it's a wonderful uh, concert. He does it every year. But in the middle of it, he took set aside some time to talk about an organization, International Justice Mission, that, that he and some of the other musicians support, and talked about their work in fighting human trafficking across the world. And we all watched a, a video documenting the, um, the, the release and the liberation of some women and children who had been kept as slaves, and hearing testimony from some of the victims. Of course... You know, those are two pretty extreme examples. But, but the truth is, you know, wherever you look, the world is still broken. Even during the holiday season, addiction is still rampant. There's still a nationwide epidemic of loneliness and isolation. Young people are still experiencing historic levels of anxiety and depression. And millions of Americans seem to be walking away from the Christian faith. We live in a dark and broken world. And honestly, as much as I, as much as I like all the holiday traditions and decorations, as much as I look forward to the parties and the time to spend with family and friends, as much as I secretly enjoy some of those cheesy Christmas movies, Sometimes, sometimes I can't help but think 
that all we're really doing is just trying to pretend for a little while that everything's okay. That we're just trying not to think about our problems. That we're just trying to pretend that that all we really need is just a little injection of Christmas spirit. And then everything would be great. And that's why we need Advent. Because Advent is a season of hope, but it's not a naive or sentimental hope. Advent is a season that refuses to allow us to pretend that everything is already okay. To quote the preacher Fleming Rutledge, Advent begins in the dark. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look for something greater to come. Our secular holiday traditions invite us to forget about our worries for a while, to act as if everything is okay, but Advent is a season, Advent is a season for those who know that's just not true. I think that's one of the reasons that the book of Isaiah is so beloved in Advent, why it shows up so much on lectionaries. If you look at the prayer book, you'll notice that all the readings in evening prayer throughout the whole season of Advent, all the Old Testament readings are from Isaiah. If you look at all the the assigned lections on Sunday services, you'll notice that throughout Advent, there is more reading from Isaiah than from the whole of the rest of the Old Testament combined. Why is it that we turn to this prophet during Advent? Why is it that he is the voice that we listen to during this season? You could give, you could give several different answers, but, but I certainly think that at least one answer is that because much like Advent itself, Isaiah begins in the dark. You remember that Remember that passage from Isaiah chapter 9? We heard it last week in Lessons and Carols. He says, the people who walked in what? Darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. And if you ask, well, who are these people walking and dwelling in darkness? Well, all you have to do is read some of the early prophecies of Isaiah. And it becomes pretty clear that Isaiah thinks it's his own people, the Jews. And and it seems that the main point of many of his prophecies, of the vast majority of them for the first half of the book, the main point of Isaiah's prophecies is just to insist that we pay attention, that we see the darkness, that we don't look away, that we recognize how much it dominates our lives. Isaiah forces us to confront the uncomfortable truth that we're living in the dark and that the dark isn't just out there, it's in here too. Listen to how he begins. This is his opening prophecy. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. 
They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Isaiah is not really the kind of person that you would generally invite to your Christmas party. Uh, Because most of the time, he's just going to insist on telling you why everything is broken and you are too. And you know, we've got, I mean, we've got our own cultural prophets today. We have plenty of people who, who make a living uh, critiquing and calling out our individual and our corporate sins. And some of them can be very forceful and loud and strident, but few can compare to Isaiah. He doesn't just document Judah's national problems. He doesn't just call them out for their sins. He doesn't just tell them that things are broken. He tells them that they are so far gone that they have fallen so far into the darkness that no light is getting to them and even their own God, even Yahweh himself is turning against them. And he does all of this with some pretty graphic imagery. At one point, he's talking to Jerusalem about how dark her people are And he says, you've become nothing more than a common prostitute. And then just a little while later, he says, all you are is a bunch of murderers with blood on your hands. If that wasn't enough, just a little bit later, he starts to mock their worship. He mocks their religious piety. He says, God's not pleased or flattered because he knows knows that you've despised justice. He knows that the rich have trampled on the poor. He knows you're a nation of people just looking out for themselves. So he's not pleased with your sacrifices. He's repulsed by them. Of course, as Isaiah goes on, it becomes clear that it's not just the Jews. It would make it easier, wouldn't it, if it were just the Jews? It's always nice when you can find someone else, some group to blame, you know, That's the problem. That's what's wrong with the world, like Joe Biden or Donald Trump or all those social media gurus out in Silicon Valley who are making money by making us addicted to their devices or the Jews. The Jews have often been an easy, easy target to blame when you want to find what's wrong with the world. And apparently, judging by some of the words and behavior coming from some of our most elite universities, the Jews are once again an easy target to blame. But Isaiah won't let us get away with that kind of easy blame shifting. Uh, Don't get me wrong, he, he he definitely lays blame on his own people, the Jews. He exposes their darkness. He pronounces God's judgment on them. But then, then he starts to turn his attention to the nations around them. All those nations that might have felt good from hearing what was being said about the Jews. Then he starts looking at Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Edom, Arabia, Egypt. Turns out, turns out Jerusalem isn't the only city dwelling and wandering in darkness. Turns out the darkness is everywhere. And they too have no excuse But Isaiah doesn't stop there. His prophecy isn't just to tell us how bad things are, to force us to look at the tragedy of our lives. If he was, 
you know, we might read him during Lent, but he would hardly be a favorite for Advent. What makes him so beloved in Advent is that Isaiah's message is ultimately one of hope, profound hope. But as I said, not a naive or sentimental hope. Isaiah has a message for hope for people who know they're in the dark. Are there glimpses of this that you get all throughout his prophecies? But really, it only happens in chapter 40 with these verses that we read a minute ago. It's really in chapter 40 that the whole tenor of the book changes from focusing on judgment to addressing hope. How does it begin? Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to them. Comfort. That's what we all want, isn't it? We want comfort. That's part of the reason I think that we spend so much money and eat so much food during this time of the year. It's part of the reason we watch those movies, those Christmas movies that we've seen dozens of times before. Because they make us feel better. It's kind of comforting. But that's not the comfort that Isaiah has in mind. What does he say? What's the hope that he offers to a poor and troubled people? If you notice just this little passage we read, these five verses, he actually he mentions two different reasons, two bases for hope. First, he tells Jerusalem, he says that her warfare has ended. That all of the struggle and the strife, the hard labor, the burdens and the bondage that she's born, all of that is coming to an end. And why? Because, because he says, your iniquity is pardoned. Because the Lord, because you have received from the Lord double for all your sins. Now, Isaiah's original audience, they would have understood this because they knew what it was like to be burdened and beaten down. They knew what it was like to live in warfare. They knew the stories of redemption and deliverance from the past. They knew and they longed for freedom. And they also knew, they knew what a weight iniquity is. They knew how it felt, how it bears down on you, how it's like some weight that has to be lifted off your shoulders. They knew that their iniquity was like a dirty stain that had polluted them and they can't wash it off. And they also knew because they were familiar with the book of Leviticus and all the sacrifices and the sacrificial system of the temple, they knew that that weight couldn't be lifted and that stain couldn't be made clean unless some kind of atonement is made. So they understand what Isaiah is saying. What he's saying is, your weight is being taken off. You are being washed. Atonement is made. Now, it isn't until 13 chapters later, in Isaiah 53, that, that Isaiah makes it clear just how this atonement happens. Because it's not until then that we come to realize that the suffering and the sacrifice isn't borne by the whole of the Jewish people. It's actually all one Jewish man. 
one Jew in particular, one man that Isaiah calls a faithful servant. It's in Isaiah 53 that we learn that one Jew in particular absorbs the darkness and bears the weight not only of their iniquity but ours. One Jew in particular is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One Jew in particular is wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That doesn't become clear until chapter 53, but already, already here in chapter 40, Isaiah can't help himself, and he is telling them the comfort that comes from that atonement. Your iniquity is pardoned. You have been washed. Your warfare is coming to an end. You are being made free. That's one of the reasons he gives them for hope. But he doesn't stop there. How does he continue? A voice is crying. What's the voice say? In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. In the desert, make straight a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the voice of the Lord has spoken. And this reference to raised valleys and flattened hills, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us today uh, because we don't have to navigate Rocky Mountain passes or arid deserts when we're traveling. We've got nice tollways. We fly on planes. Um, although I am convinced I've spent a year driving along endless construction on Legacy and they are trying to teach me uh, what Isaiah has in mind, the longing for a clear road, right? But you don't have to have, you don't have to have ridden some horse-drawn chariot across some treacherous mountain pass to understand what Isaiah is saying or why it's good news. Because what he's saying is that the Lord himself, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the liberator of slaves, the defender of the poor, he's not just going to forgive his people from afar. He himself is on his way. He is coming to them. And when he arrives, when he gets there, the splendor of his glory will be revealed and it will swallow and overwhelm every shadow of darkness. When he arrives, all the ugliness and all the darkness of life will be consumed by his beauty and glory. That sounds pretty good, right? But you do have to wonder, imagine yourself 2,500 years ago, hearing this prophecy being spoken. Sounds really nice. But you have to wonder how many people listened to those words and thought that they were just that, words. Just, just words about some promised future. Because remember, when Isaiah is speaking this prophecy, he's addressing a people who are living right now, they are living under threat. There's the threat of the Assyrians that just tried to come and overwhelm them. The Lord's told Hezekiah that the Babylonians are coming next and Israel and Judah won't be able to withstand them. There's, they're living under the threat of their own greed and idolatry. They're living in darkness. 
And sometimes when you're in that place, sometimes it's pretty hard to take comfort from mere words. Sometimes it's hard to take comfort from a promise. Sometimes it's hard to believe that just because Isaiah says it, that you've really been forgiven, that your burden has been lifted, because you sure don't feel that way sometimes. And so sometimes it's easier just to comfort yourself by just not thinking about your sin, you know, and thinking about your neighbor's sin instead. That's more comforting. Sometimes it's hard to believe that the king is on his way when it seems like he's tarried a while and things are still broken and things are still dark and generations have lived and died. And so, so instead, it's just easier to seek comfort elsewhere. And throughout the book of Isaiah, one thing that becomes very clear is that many times, maybe more often than not, that's exactly what the people of Jerusalem do. In their darkness, in their distress, they just look for comfort elsewhere. Isaiah says that rich people find comfort in building nice and pretty homes. That politicians seek comfort from military alliances and political strategies. That many people evidently are finding comfort from good parties with lively music and lots to drink. Isaiah at one point talks about people who tarry late in the night drinking wine, listening to songs on the lyre and harp and tambourine. Just goes to show you, ancient Jews aren't that different from us after all. And that's one reason that this prophecy still speaks directly to us today. Because it's true that in some ways our situation is very different from theirs. The threats that threaten them don't threaten us. Their darkness is different from ours. And more importantly, we know what they didn't know. We know who that child is that Isaiah mentions in chapter 9 upon whose shoulders the government will rest. We know the identity of that faithful servant he speaks of in chapter 53 who will bear our iniquities, who will be crushed for our transgressions. We live on the other side of the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, in some ways, in some ways, our lives are very much like theirs. Because we too dwell in a land of darkness. And like them, we too are tempted to comfort ourselves in a wide variety of ways. They took comfort in the strength of the Egyptian military. We take comfort in the power of our own technology and techniques. They had chariots. We've got predictive analytics. I'm sure that a lot of those people who heard Isaiah talking they took comfort by just not listening to what he had to say about their own problems and then going and spending time having conversations with their neighbor about those wicked Moabites and all those great things Isaiah had to say about them. That's comforting. It's hard to take comfort from a promise. Promises require faith. It's all well and good for Isaiah to declare your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned and your king is on the way. But that will give you no comfort. That will give you no comfort unless you genuinely believe that he is telling the truth and he can be trusted. 
I began this morning by suggesting that sometimes the sentimentality of all our Christmas traditions, sometimes it seems like what we're actually trying to do is just ignore or forget for a little while the darkness of our lives. And I imagine that some of you probably stopped listening to me after that. That was the end of you for you for the sermon. The only thing you're taking away from this is, you know, Father Jonathan is this grumpy, grinchy, Christmas-hating curmudgeon, and I'm never inviting him to my Christmas social. But that wasn't the point. The issue isn't that our Christmas traditions are somehow bad or that we shouldn't celebrate during this time of the year. We should celebrate. Our lives have been blessed and enriched by innumerable gifts, good and perfect gifts, as the Apostle James says, which come down from the Father of lights. We have a lot of reasons to celebrate. And at their best, that's exactly what our Christmas traditions allow and do. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't engage in them. What I am suggesting is that we should not allow our festivity to make us forget the voice of Isaiah. We shouldn't forget the darkness that's around us and within us. And we shouldn't try to comfort ourselves with just a bunch of pleasures and distraction. Because this is Advent. And Advent, as Bonhoeffer said, is a season for poor and troubled souls. Advent is a time to face the darkness, but to do it knowing and remembering that the light is coming. Isaiah said that the Lord was on his way. And he told the people to prepare the way. You might remember that Jesus says something very similar. Jesus says that he too is coming, that he's coming soon, that he'll surprise us with his coming. And he too tells us to prepare, to be alert, to watch, to wait, to tell others and to prepare ourselves for his arrival. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe... Uh, maybe you are just loving this time of year and you love all the lights and the parties and the food and you just wish I would shut up because let you enjoy your season. Or maybe, maybe you look around at the happiness of people around you and you think, am I the only person that's living in the dark? Or maybe you're like me and you just kind of go back and forth depending on the day. But wherever you are, Wherever you are, Isaiah's words are for you. It is to those who walk in darkness. They are the ones who have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Your struggle, your warfare is coming to an end. Your iniquity has been pardoned. And your king is on his way. And when he gets here, when he gets here, he will banish the darkness. When he gets here, there will be nothing but light. When he gets here, that is when the party will really begin. 
In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.